In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, thank you guys for coming tonight. Just for those who are new here, welcome. It's always uh, great to see some new faces. I can, can I just ask you, if you wanted to make a remark or a comment or anything, please use the mic because uh, we're recording these sessions. So um, just put your hand up and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get you the mic if you wanted to add anything to the discussion. Um, tonight is actually the wrap-up of, <laughs> of the series. So over the last six weeks or so, we've been covering the series Introduction to Apologetics. Um, we looked at our um, origin, our meaning, our morality, our destiny from, through the lens of Christ, through the lens of Christianity, and we compared that to other worldviews, and in particular we focused on the secular worldview. And what we saw over the, hopefully, <laughs> what we saw over the last six weeks is how consistent, how coherent um, the Christian worldview is, um, and how much more hopeful it is compared to the other faiths or the other other worldviews. Um, we also looked at, we spent two or three topics looking or searching for God outside of the Bible. So we looked out into the universe and we saw that there's definitely signs of a creator. And in fact, by looking at the universe, we saw that it wasn't just the creator, it was a, it was a personal God. So it wasn't a pantheistic God as, as some of the faiths believe but it was actually a personal creator who must have resided outside of the universe. We also looked at morality. So we looked inwards at our own morality, and we saw that imprinted or um, scribed within our hearts is this moral law, this, this, uh, this uh, tendency to do good. And that tendency to do good or that conscience can only be ascribed to a God who's external, uh, and that God must have been a good God. So we, we're starting to piece together bits and pieces about who this God is. We know he's a personal God. We know he's a good God. Um, and the more and more we look or we, we sort of search um, for God, the more there are signs for God. Obviously, over six weeks, we're very limited to what we can look at. This is supposed to be a very, very basic introduction. But the more and more we look into the matter, the more we see that there are definitely signs of a creator who is a loving God. Now, we said that this God, if we were to search for this God, it will literally narrow us down towards the Judo-Christian God. Okay? So if I was someone who is outside of the faith and I was genuinely on the search looking for the truth, um, I firmly believe that I would be led towards the Judo-Christian God. So where would you start if you were looking for the faith and the truth led you towards the Judo-Christian God? Where would you start, generally speaking? The Bible. Which part of the Bible? Sorry? Yeah, but if I... Okay, I was actually looking for the Old Testament. <laughs> because if you're looking for God, and it, you, you're led towards the, you know, the God of the Jews or the, or the God of um, or Christ you would start at the very beginning, and that's the Old Testament, generally speaking. But Ilaria would do things differently, of course. <laughs> you are very special, absolutely. So you would start by looking through the Old Testament, through the Scriptures. But the Scriptures, if you were to read the Scriptures, the Scriptures aren't um, complete, you would notice. What do I mean by that? Reading through the Old Testament, what do you get a sense of? They point towards something. 
almost every book in the Old Testament points towards something. What do you think that is? Who do you think that is? The Messiah. Absolutely. So the Old Testament isn't complete in itself. In fact, the Old Testament actually points us towards a Messiah. The Jews firmly believed that a Messiah was coming. Um, This Messiah was supposed to redeem them. And and what that means can vary from from, uh, different Jewish sects. But essentially, this Messiah was going to um, rescue the nation of Israel and restore the glory of God's people. However that's interpreted can be... uh, can be a little bit different from, from uh, the different sects of, of uh, Judaism. Okay? Now, as Christians, obviously, we believe in the Messiah, and we believe that Messiah did come. Right? But we also believe that the Messiah didn't just come. He came and did so much more than what the Jews were expecting him to do. Okay? So the Jews were expecting him to redeem the nation of Israel, in fact, what the Messiah did, or what Christ did, is he redeemed all of humanity. The Jews were hoping to be restored as a nation, but we believe the Messiah restored all of humanity and destroyed the, um, the destruction caused by sin. So he came to do what the, what the Jews were expecting, but he came to do so much more than that. Okay? But what is the truth? Okay? So is Christ really the Messiah? That's how we'll start tonight's talk. Is Christ really the Messiah? Was he a real historical figure? Was his coming foretold in the Old Testament? Was Jesus who he claimed to be? And did Jesus really rise from the the dead? These are sort of the objections, the general objections that we get from people who are outside of the faith. Okay? Most, most people who, who deny that Christ is the Son of God, these are the objections, the main objections that they have. They may have other objections, but these are the prominent ones. And hopefully these are the ones we'll try and cover tonight. I know it's a lot to cover in one session. I don't know what that is. Okay, sorry about that. These are the questions we'll hopefully cover tonight. Let's start with the very basic question. Was Jesus a real person? Was Jesus a real historical figure? Because nowadays, I don't know, I don't know if you've come across this, some people actually believe that Jesus was just a myth thought up over time, and uh, the Christians sort of pushed this idea, and then Constantine came along and he, he made... He turned Christ, this figure, into a deity, a god, and so forth. Of course, we don't believe any of that. And what I thought we'd do was to answer this question, did Jesus actually exist as a person, as a human being? Let's look outside of the Scriptures. Okay? Let's look outside of the Bible. This is what Josephus has to say in his Antiquities of the Jews. He says, At this time, the time of Pilate, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. 
They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive accordingly. He was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Okay? This is Josephus. And in fact, there are several, several ancient non-Christian texts that speak of Christ and speak of his followers and speak of him um, in several aspects. And I wanted to just summarize them in in these points. And all of these writers, these non-Christian writers, again, I'm I'm emphasizing that they're non-Christian, these all wrote within 150 years of Christ's um, life. Okay? So what do they say? Notice how consistent these points are, these 12 points are. Notice how consistent they are with what the New Testament tells us. Okay? Let's have a look. Point number one. Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. Number two, he lived a virtuous life. Number three, he performed miracles. Number four, he was related to St. James. Number five, he was regarded as the Messiah. Number six, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Number seven, he was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Number eight, darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. Interesting. Number nine, his disciples believed that he rose from the dead. Number ten, his disciples were willing to die for their faith or for their belief. Eleven, Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. And number twelve, his followers denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. Okay? So, when it comes to the question of whether Jesus was a real historical figure, there is an abundance of proof that he genuinely was a man who walked, talked, and did everything that a human being would do on this earth. Okay? Now, let's look at the next point. Was the Lord's coming foretold? Was the Lord's coming foretold? The Scriptures spoke of the Lord who was to come long before he walked the earth. This is a very, very powerful point. This is one of the biggest, this is a big deal for us as Christians. Okay? This wasn't a coincidence that the Old Testament spoke of a Messiah and Christ happened to just fit the description. No, this is, this is a big deal. In fact, this is no forgery, as we'll see. Um, probably the worst example. But if I had a navigator and I wanted to get it to a particular location, <laughs> and Larry is laughing, if I wanted to, to get to a particular location, this navigator would help me get to that location. Let's imagine that the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, was a navigator to help me get to not just to a particular location, but to a particular person in a particular location in a particular time in history. Okay? The Bible does that and does that to the T without, without any question. I'll show you what I mean, and I'm sure you've all seen and heard of many of these prophecies. We won't go through, through all of them, of course, because of time, but I just wanted to go through some of the main ones. Okay? So who in all the history of the world, and I'll just stop at some of them. I won't dwell on, on many of them. I'll just stop at some of them. 
Who in all the history of the world is from the seed of a woman? The reference to that is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Notice that we're talking about the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man. It's not very common that you hear of anyone speak about someone. Well, it's not very common that you hear of anyone speak about someone as being the seed. <laughs> but the seed of a woman, that never happens, right? That never happens because the seed is attributed to the male. This is in horticulture. This is in the animal kingdom. This is in humanity in general. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we are told, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? Number two. Born from the seed of Abraham. The Messiah was prophesied to be born from the seed of Abraham. The reference to that is Genesis chapter 12, verses 3 and verses 7. What about from which tribe of the 12 tribes? The answer to that is from the tribe of Judah in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Uh, from which lineage? From the lineage of King David. This is in Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, verses 5 and 6. Um, he was both, the Messiah was both God and man. This is found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Um, he was born, the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. This is in Micah chapter 5. Verse 2, um, he was preceded by a messenger and visited the Jerusalem temple before it was destroyed in 70 AD. And this is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And actually the list goes on. What about this one? I like this one. <laughs> it's not that well known, but I really like this prophecy. He died in 33 AD. Has anyone heard of this prophecy? This prophecy actually tells us when the Lord was crucified. I'll just help you set, I'll, I'll set the context. In Daniel chapter, chapter 9. So Daniel, the prophet Daniel, is standing to pray before the Lord, and he's seeking guidance, he's seeking wisdom. And the Lord answers Daniel. He answers Daniel by sending him the messenger. He sends him Archangel Gabriel. And this is what the angel Gabriel tells him. Gabriel tells him. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So here the angel Gabriel is talking about a chosen people for a chosen um, time at a chosen place. Okay. It's basically, the, the angel Gabriel is basically talking about the death and the resurrection of Christ. This is in, in verse 24 right, of chapter 9. But then let's continue. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, if we were to read this passage in the English translation, which is what, what you see before you there, you might, you know, it might not ring, um, it might not ring any bells, right? Because it's talking about 62 weeks and it's talking about 
seven weeks and so forth. But let's look at the Hebrew translation. Okay, let's look at Arabic first. One week, if I say week in Arabic, what would I call it? Zbua. What's Zbua? Instead of, <laughs> take away the week, what does the word Zbua point to? What number does it point to? Seven. In the Hebrew language, because Arabic stems from, the, from, from Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, it's Shabu'ah. Zbua'ah, Shabu'ah, right? Shabu'ah can mean one week, or it can mean a unit of seven. So I can go to the store and say, I want Shabu'ah eggs, for example. I want seven eggs. Okay? So now let's reread the passage. Now it's talking about there will be a time to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So there shall, there shall be seven sevens, so 49, and there shall be 62 sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, uh, where in the Bible do we read about the street, the streets being built again? about restoring and building Jerusalem and about the streets being built again and the wall. Who built the walls of Jerusalem after it was destroyed? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Exactly. Perfect. So, this prophecy here is telling us that after seven weeks, seven sevens, the, um, the walls of Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the streets will be rebuilt and so forth. This happened by, through Nehemiah by a decree from his king, which is Artaxerxes, I can never say his name right, and this happened in 445 BC. Okay, if you take that to be the first, uh, the indication of the first prophecy, then if you count the 62 weeks or the 62 sevens as being a count of years, then it actually takes us towards around the 33 AD. Of course, there's a bit of discrepancy because we don't exactly know when Christ was born. I don't know if you know about this. But anyway, what it does is it tells us the exact year when Christ died, 33 AD. Do you find that fascinating? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> you know what's interesting? Is it's not just, it's not just looking in hindsight. It's not looking backwards that we, we get this revelation. In fact, some Jews at the time there was a buzz at the time when Christ was, was dwelling on the earth. There was a buzz by some of the Jews who were anticipating Christ. This is one of the very important prophecies that um, some of the Pharisees and the scribes and so forth were looking at to try and determine who Christ, who the Messiah was. Okay? When our Lord met with the Samaritan woman, do you remember? She said one thing in particular. Do you remember what she said to him about the Messiah? She was trying to suss out if he's the Messiah. And she said something to him. She said, we know the, that the Messiah is coming, and he will tell us all things. Why would she say that? She was in anticipation, just like other people around that time. She was in, an, in anticipation of, of the Messiah. And you know, in Luke 19, chapter 40, we're told that Jesus actually looks at Jerusalem and he starts weeping. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And this is what he says. It's very peculiar. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So the Lord is crying over the city of Jerusalem and he's, he's saying, in, in a nutshell, if only you knew or if only you understood 
what was foretold, but it's hidden from you. Okay? Let's move on. Number nine. The prophecy, the ninth prophecy is that Jesus, or the Messiah, was to rise from the dead. By the way, the, um, the Jews didn't necessarily understand what that meant. Okay? So that it did, they didn't ascribe the Messiah to be someone who's going to rise from the dead. Um, has, is anybody familiar with Isaiah 53? This is in Isaiah 53, verse 11. Has anybody read Isaiah 53? Okay. Please, I, I beg of you, do me a favor. Tonight, go home and read Isaiah 53. Please read it. Isaiah 53, the whole chapter of Isaiah 53 describes Christ. Almost every verse in that, in that chapter um, can be ascribed to Christ. Okay? Read it, please. Um, in fact, it, was, it, it matches the life of Christ so much that, um, that many skeptics say that this chapter was added into the book of Isaiah long after it was written. Have you guys heard of this? So they say Isaiah 53 is a fraud because it speaks so much of Christ that it couldn't have happened before Christ was born, obviously. So it was a later addition. That's the understanding. <laughs> but this changed in 1947. Does anybody know what happened in 1947? No? Okay. A little boy called Muhammad. A little boy called Muhammad who is walking around. He's a little shepherd. He's a good Muhammad, this guy, because he found one of the best things in, uh, in probably in the last few centuries. He was throwing a rock to try and... He was a shepherd trying to get one of his sheep back. He threw a rock. The rock went into one of... Um, into a cave, basically, and he heard pottery breaking. Uh, this was in Qumran. Uh, so it was near the city of Jerusalem. What he actually found was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Obviously, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah. You know what's so special about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they, they were actually, they found it's actually 11 or 12 caves, not just one cave, 11 or 12 caves full of uh, vessels that contain, um, what's it called, scrolls of predominantly um, Old Testament texts. There was other bits and pieces, but it was predominantly Old Testament texts. These were left over there by uh, a religious sect who are known as the Essenes, who are basically... Uh, Jewish monastics, okay? They would have been stored there uh, between around the 200 BC. So 200 before, before the birth of the Lord um, and then going leading up to 100 BC or so, okay? Now, when it comes to Isaiah, the Dead Sea Scrolls have, they found one scroll, which is the whole book of Isaiah, the whole book in one scroll, okay? It contains Isaiah 53, Okay, so this was a, a huge find. And you know what else? I'll just add this. <laughs> the, uh, the Jews used to actually um, speak of Isaiah 53 as foretelling the coming Messiah. Uh, Messiah. Do you know when they stopped um, referring to this chapter as, um, in, you know, in reference to the Messiah? 1000 AD. So up until 1000 AD, Whenever any Jew would read um, Isaiah 53, they would, um, they would think of a coming Messiah, but the only reason they stopped um, 
looking at this chapter as referring to the Messiah was when they were opposed by many Christians who basically said, yes, this is the Messiah, and yes, here is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Can you see, can you see who it's pointing to? And so now the Jews actually read Isaiah 53 as pointing to um, the nation of Israel. But there are so many things wrong with that, and I'm sure you'll figure it out if you read Isaiah 53, which you promised me you'll do tonight. Okay? All right, moving on. Is Jesus Christ who he claimed to be? Is Jesus Christ who he claimed to be? Another objection to the Lord is that, yep, Jesus may have lived and walked and talked on the earth, but he never once admitted to being a God or being the Son of God. But, of course, we have reference to our Lord um, admitting to being the Son of God and testifying to being the Son of God. So in John chapter 14, verse 6, we are told, and this is our Lord um, exclaiming, he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Sorry again. Okay. What about when um, another reference? There's actually, the Lord makes several references to himself as the Son of God, and he makes this explicitly, but he also makes some references to himself as the Son of God implicitly by some of the actions that he does. And you can see the reaction of, of the people sort of determines. That's how you know what he's, um, whether he was referring to himself as God um, or not, because some of the reactions basically give it away. But when the high priest was asking the Lord, this is in Mark chapter 14, verse 61 to 63, when the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? This is the Lord's response. He said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest, what does he do? He tears his, his uh, garments because this is the ultimate blasphemy, that he's equating himself to God the Father. The reason I'm talking about this is because so many people, nowadays especially, and I'm sure you've experienced this, so many people will look at the Lord and say, oh yeah, he was a good teacher. He was a good good man that lived you know, 2,000 years ago. I, I, they don't deny that at all. But does he claim to be God? No. Do they believe that he's God? Definitely not. But he was a good man. Okay. My, uh, I was getting some work done in the uh, in the house a couple of years back, and uh, the man was fixing the the roof. And he <laughs> he looked at the books, some of the books that I've got in the library, and he looked and he said, "Oh, you like to read?" And I said, "Oh yeah, you know, it's not just mine; it's the family's blah blah blah." Anyway, he looked again and he's like, he saw it's like the Bible and a couple of other books, and he's like, "Oh, you're religious." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I I am Christian." He said, oh, yeah, you believe in Jesus? And I said, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He said, yeah, he's a good guy. He goes, I, re I reckon he was a good guy. Nothing more than that. He was a good bloke. And he left. <laughs> so I started laughing. But he's, he's like, do you, what, do you believe more than that? He's looking at me and he's trying to suss out, do you believe more than that? And I'm like, I go, yeah, you know, like Christians sort of believe that he's God. And he's like, oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Not a word out of him after that. He probably thought I was insane. This is what C.S. Lewis has to say in Mere Christianity. Okay, it's a little bit sort of in your face, and I apologize, but 
I couldn't have said it better than C.S. Lewis. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about the Lord. That is, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be a God, to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Okay, this is in the book, Mere Christianity. Very powerful words. I apologize, but he says it as it is. So either we believe Jesus for who he claimed to be, which is that he is the Son of God, or he's been deceiving us, or even worse, and God forgive me for saying this, that he may have been delusional. Okay? What do we say to that? What would you say to that? If someone came to you and said, yep, yeah, Jesus is a good good guy, good bloke, and that's, that's as far as I'm willing to accept, what would you say? What would you say? Give me anything. I'll take anything. <laughs> anything? Sorry? Yeah, I'll <laughs> give him a book of me. <laughs> give him me a Christianity. I like that. Okay, you know what? That's a good answer. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. For us, personally, we have to be convinced that God is who he claimed to be, and obviously we do. Okay? His miracles, his resurrection, his teachings. You know, the way Jesus taught was not like any other way that the scribes and the Pharisees of the time taught. Did you notice that in, in uh, some of the scripture passages? You know, in um, when Christ sat on the mountain and he taught the Beatitudes, you know what the reaction was from the crowd? They said, wow, he spoke as a man of authority. Why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees at the time, when they used to speak, or when they used to teach, they used to teach referring to the prophets. So they used to say, this is, this is the passage by Isaiah. They would read the passage, and then they say, this is what the passage means. This is what we ought to do, and so forth. But Christ came along, and he would say things like, you heard that it was said, but I tell you. Okay? So they walked away thinking, okay, wow. This man is not just a normal man. This man is speaking with authority because no one else would dare speak that way. Okay? But what about the things that Jesus says? The things that Jesus says. Does that sound like it's someone who's delusional? Does it sound like someone who's a deceiver? No. Um, the prophecies that he fulfilled, obviously we spoke about that. They are a great testimony that this man isn't just, um, you know, a liar or a deceiver or whatever it may be. And the very basic um, truth is that if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, would he be willing to go through all that he went through for a lie? 
Okay? And we'll look at this when we look at the life of the disciples as well. It does not make sense for him to be a liar or to be delusional. Um, because you know what? Uh, what, good, what good is a dead Messiah? What good is a dead Messiah? If Jesus was deceiving us all along and then he died, then what? <laughs> right? Then what? So this is the next point. Did Jesus really die? Uh, did Jesus really die on the cross? Was Jesus really buried? And did Jesus really rise from the dead? Okay? And I just wanted to go through these five points to try and emphasize or to support um, the burial of Christ and his resurrection. Okay? The first point is, is a, it's a point that's often overlooked. Okay? The resurrection was preached in Jerusalem. So Christ died in Jerusalem. He was buried. And then very shortly after, the disciples came out preaching a resurrected Lord. They didn't go to a different place. They went to the same city where Jesus taught and walked and, and performed miracles and so forth. All right? There was a man that says, uh, one of the New Testament scholars, he says, the resurrection proclamation, so the disciples speaking of the resurrection of Christ, could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. Okay, so basic, basically what he's saying is, the Lord died, he was buried, and then according to the scriptures and according to the disciples, he's a, he's a, he resurrected three days later. Shortly after, these disciples came out into the land and they preached a resurrected Christ. If the Lord had not really died, and if the Lord, if the Lord's body was found, could they go out and preach the same message? They couldn't. They would be shut down right away. If the body was found, if the body of the Lord was found, <coughs> they would have nothing to preach. What about point number two? The Jews confirmed an empty tomb. Have you guys read this? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 11 to 15, we actually hear of the guards coming back and going to the Roman governor to tell him that the body of the Lord was no longer in the tomb, and they passed by the Jews and they tell them. They passed by the, the um the high, the high priest and some of the Jewish leaders, and they tell them the body's been the body's gone. Um, and what do the Jews do? They say, "Here, take a sum of money, and go and tell the the Roman leaders, and go and tell everybody who asks you that the body has been stolen." Okay. What's interesting about this is that the response isn't no, the body's around, or no, we've seen the body, or no, it's over there, or you know. You name it. They actually acknowledged that, yep, the body is gone. The body is nowhere to be found. Okay, let's come up with a plan. Okay? If they had any inclination or any idea where the body of the Lord could have been, if he had not resurrected, then they would have, they would have spent 
or they would have dedicated all their energy to finding this, the body of the Lord. And if they had found the body of the Lord, it would have laid rest to any claim by the disciples. What about point number three? Joseph of Arimathea. What do we know about Joseph of Arimathea? What do you guys know about Joseph? Anybody? <laughs> yeah? He's actually part of the Sanhedrin, which is uh, like, uh, uh, like a Jewish Supreme Court, basically. So he was, he was one of the judges of the Jews. But you know what that means? Is that this man was well-known. Well-known amongst the Jews, well-known amongst the Roman uh, leaders. He was well-known in Jerusalem. Okay? Now, we know that Joseph of Arimathea was the one that took the body of Christ, um, anointed it for burial, and, um, and buried it. Why is that a strong point? Why is that strong evidence for us? If the disciples were making up this story, if the disciples knew that the Lord did not resurrect and they did intend and, and hide, to hide the body of the Lord, would they mention Joseph of Arimathea? Would they mention this man as being the man who took the body and, and buried it and so forth? No. Sorry, say again. I think we saw the old scriptures that he and God will be loving people at that time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good point. Um, <clears throat> absolutely. Thanks, Mithani. I, um, what, what I was more as well referring to is not just, so don't just look at Joseph himself, but look at his, his ranking as a, as a supreme uh, judge. Um, puts him in the story, puts him in the Gospels. But if he, wasn't, if he wasn't involved with the burial, if he wasn't convinced that the body resurrected, then Joseph of Arimathea would be one of the first people to stand up and say, no, this is, this is a hoax, no, the Lord did die, and so forth and so forth. So the fact that they mentioned Joseph of Arimathea as being one of the very well-known people at the time shows confidence in the disciples that what they're saying is true. Does that make sense? Yeah? The other thing as well is a lot of people would say that um, this is a legend. So Christ lived on earth and, and was crucified and died. He didn't resurrect because he's just a normal man, but the legend developed over time. But these five proofs here, or these five bits of evidence, show that this wasn't something that developed over time. Okay, We hear straight away, literally days after that the disciples went out to preach a resurrected Lord. What about number four? The testimony of the women. The testimony of the woman. This is not my saying. Okay? I, I promise you, I have nothing to do with women at the time. Their testimony. What was it worth? Was it worth much? Not much at all. 
In fact, Josephus, who I spoke about earlier, would say that the testimony of women was worthless. His words, not mine. He says the testimony of the women was worthless. In fact, the testimony of the women, the testimony of children, and the testimony of someone who's disabled, they all come sort of down here, and the testimony of men comes up the top. And when we, we know that some of the, we know that there's a short Jewish prayer that the men would pray. And what does he say? He essentially says, thank you, God, for creating me a man and not like this and this and this and not a woman. Okay? But thankfully, all this has changed. I'm very glad. <laughs> okay? Why is this important? Why is that important? The disciples go out and say, yep, the women found that the body of the Lord was gone. The women found the tomb to be empty. If they were making this up, if they were creating a hoax, if they were trying to cover up and, um, or, you know, trying to, uh, to sell this lie, would they go out and say, yep, the women found the body? Or would they say, hey, St. Peter found that there was no, sorry, would they say that there is no body? Or would they say St. Peter, for example, found the empty tomb? Or would they say, you know, St. James or whoever found the empty tomb? But they... They testify that it's actually the women who found the empty, empty tomb. And point number five is that there is no motive to steal the body. The Romans had no motive to steal the body of the Lord because, in fact, the Romans wanted to squash Christianity because they thought it was a Jewish sect. They already had issues with the Jewish people. Imagine this new sect adding to the turmoil. So they had absolutely um, no incentive to, to steal the body. The Jews obviously did not want to steal the body. If anything, they wanted to prove that, that the Lord is dead. That puts an end to Christianity. Um, what about the disciples themselves? Would the disciples themselves do that? Let's say the disciples had put all their hope in this Messiah as, as being the one who's going to be the leader of the Jewish nation and he's going to restore the people to, to their former glory and all that, and then they see the Lord on the cross, and the Lord is dead. Would they go through the trouble of stealing the body and then claiming that the Lord rose from the dead? Why or why not? What do you guys think? Would you, someone say something? Sorry? They could. Would they want to? Can you use the mic? Sorry, is there the mic there? Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Good. So they could have. If they wanted to spread this lie, if they wanted to uh, push their agenda, which is to, to, to basically advance this new sect of, um, away from the Jewish beliefs, they could have done this. But why do we believe that they didn't do this?
<laughs> David's on, on, on point. Okay, so David's got a good point. First of all, it wasn't as easy as just moving the body away from, from, the, from the tomb and then claiming that the tomb was empty because we know that the tomb had a seal, the Roman seal. We know that the tomb had the Roman soldiers. We actually know quite a lot about how the Romans used to um, assign posts. So the Romans, you know how they would assign posts? They would actually assign posts in a semicircle, um, protecting whatever, they re- whatever it is they're protecting, and then they would have one man um, watch, and then they would rotate the watch, and this one man, basically, if, if he needed to, he can wake, wake them all up, he, can, he, he basically has charge of the, of the Roman soldiers. So the way that they assigned their posts was actually um, so meticulous, okay? The second thing is the Romans could actually be um, put to death if um, sorry, if someone had messed with the Roman seal, they could be put to death. If a Roman soldier was found to be sleeping on a post when he shouldn't have been sleeping, he could be severely punished or put to death. Um, they were so regimented, regimented and so, so, so um, strict and so cautious with the way they would um, protect and the way they would watch and the way, the way they would do all these things that the disciples, quite frankly, would have had to go through a lot of trouble to try and get the body of the Lord away from the tomb. Not to mention the, um, the, massive, the massive rock that was uh, sealing the tomb. And then, like David said, the last point is that they saw what happened to the Lord. Would they have been willing to go through the same trouble not just one man, not just two men, not just you know a bunch of them, but all of his followers would have had to go through the same ordeal just to prove their point or just to push their agenda. It is very unlikely. It is very unlikely that they would do so. Okay? Now, this is the biggest point. This is our biggest proof. There's a, the resurrected Lord brought out or brought about a change in his followers. We are going to be celebrating the Feast of the Apostles in a couple of days. St. Peter and St. Paul, I thought, would be perfect examples to try and make this case um, about how, just how dramatically their life was turned around because of not just the teachings of the Lord, not just living with the Lord for and walking and talking with the Lord for three years. This is speaking particularly about St. Peter. But seeing what the Lord went through, and then seeing the Lord resurrected. Okay, So we know St. Peter, literally, watching the Lord become a captive and watching the Lord um, being led towards his trials and into the foot of the cross. And we know that St. Peter does what? He denies the Lord. St. Peter went from someone who was, who was fearful and who was um, basically keeping a distance from the Lord at, leading up to the crucifixion to the same man who stood at the Pentecost and spoke that powerful um, sermon of his. And we see that thousands of people converted. This is the same man who went through such a transformation. You know who St. Peter was talking to on the day of the Pentecost? Was he talking to just um, your average Joes? He was talking to pilgrims who were coming from all over the region to celebrate the Pentecost. They weren't just the people who weren't religious. These were people who 
upheld the faith so much so that they were willing to walk miles and miles and miles to come and celebrate the feast. So he wasn't just dealing with your average person. What about St. Paul? St. Paul, who was a terrorist, who was crucifying Christians, who was one of the most devout Jews, how did his life change? We know how his life changed. In fact, we see in, in, in so many of his epistles just how much of a transformation he went through. There was one particular um, passage that I wanted to share with you because I thought it was phenomenal. It's the one where St. Paul was brought before King Agrippa. King Agrippa was basically the king um, entrusted with the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion, uh, religious affairs and so forth. Um, so the, the governor, Festus, brought St. Paul and he brought him before King Agrippa. And this is what Paul says, okay? This is, uh, this is in Acts chapter 26, right? We are told, Now as thus he made a defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you beside yourself? Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not, not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian also, to become a Christian. Okay? This is the king that could have had finished him off on the, on the spot. He had um, the authority to send him to his death right there and there. Okay? So what made St. Peter and St. Paul so bold, so courageous when it came to proclaiming the truth? What did they experience? They must have experienced something profound. And what they experienced was the risen Messiah. They weren't just talking about a man who lived a good life and died. No, they had met face-to-face with the risen Messiah. I wanted to share this passage with you because it actually has some really, really strong relevance to what we're saying. It's a very important passage, actually. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 8, St. Paul is talking and he says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Caiaphas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Do you you know when the epistle epistle to the Corinthians was written? This epistle? Does anybody know? Sorry? It was written, yeah, it was was, not two to five years, but you're onto something. This was written about 55 AD, okay? So 20 years or so after, after the death of Christ. But this passage, this passage is actually a creed. So scholars actually believe that 
um, St. Paul is actually reciting a part of a creed there. And this creed is believed to come two to five years, or around, yeah, around five years after the death of the Lord. Okay? So it's not Paul's own words. It's coming from, it's likely to have come from St. Peter and from St. James. So Dave, you are on the ball. Well done. Okay? What about some of the other things that St. Paul says there? Let's have a look at that. He says, he says, and that he was seen by Caiaphas. So St. Peter saw the Lord after, after the Lord's resurrection. Then by the twelve. And then he says he was seen by over 500 brethren. The Lord was seen, resurrected by over 500 brethren. And then St. Paul says one extra thing. He says, by the way, some of these 500 brethren have fallen asleep, but the greater part remain to be present. What's St. Paul saying to his, his uh, church in, in Corinth? He's saying 500 people saw the Lord. Now, some of these have passed on, okay? But the rest of them are here. They're alive. You can have a chat to them. You can ask them what they saw. He's actually testifying to what these people saw. He wouldn't have written that unless he knew that what he was writing was the truth, right? Because any, any man could have written back and said, what 500 people? Give me one name, okay? But it must have been common knowledge that these people were around and that these people saw the risen Messiah. Okay, so this little creed that we see up here actually testifies to the truth. I won't take too much longer. I'll, I'll end very soon. I just wanted to talk about what is the truth. What is truth? Okay, in John chapter 18, verse 37 to, to 38, we know that Jesus was brought in front of Pilate. Okay, and Pilate asks him a very simple question. He's questioning him to see if he's worth um, the crucifixion that he's about to endure. And he says, are you a king? He's asking the Lord Christ, and he says, are you a king? And then Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You know what Pilate's response to him was? Pilate's response to him is, what is truth? And before the Lord could open his mouth to answer, Pilate walks out of that room, never to hear the response. The Lord, who is the truth, stands before him. Pilate could have asked him any of the questions. Pilate could have... Pilate came so close to knowing the truth if he had waited around moments to find out. But he didn't. He wandered out. Okay? But for us, we know that our Lord is the truth. The search for truth for us ends with one man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay, so the disciples, I just, I'm going to wrap it up, but the disciples came to know that the Lord is the truth. They came to know that the Lord is the truth, and that the Lord is love, and that the Lord is God, okay? They understood when they looked back through the Old Testament scriptures, they found that they were created out of love, okay? Where there is a possibility of love, there, there must be a free will. So they knew that there is a free will. And where there is free will, there is the possibility to sin. Where there is the possibility to sin, there is sin, which means there is a requirement for a redeemer. Where a redeemer is required, a messiah comes to meet that need. They saw all these things. They look back and they can see the progression 
of the truth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And then they encountered Christ, who is the truth. They were enlightened. They understood all these things that the prophets were talking about were fulfilled in one man. Okay? I am done. I promise you. All I wanted to say was, for us, the truth is the Lord. For us, the truth is written in the Gospels and written in the Old Testament. Um, and this is the verse that we started our series with. Remember this verse? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where St. Peter tells us, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and with fear. But you know what's interesting about this verse? Does anybody know how it begins? Does anybody know how it begins? No? Okay. This is how it begins. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. So before, I know we spoke about for the last six or so weeks, we spoke about all these things that are pointing us towards the Lord. But there's a difference between talking about the Lord than than actually sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts. So I think think the take-home message isn't just knowing all these facts about God and knowing all these facts about the Son of God. No. I think the take-home message for us is actually the first part, which is to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Because I think that if we do that right, then perhaps we don't even need to do the second part. Okay? I think that speaks multitudes through each of us. I am finished. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Are there any comments? Anything you want to add? That's a very good question. What do you guys think? I don't have an answer, so what do you th- what do you guys think? <laughs> hey, Larry has got the answers. Yep, so his wife was having dreams about this Messiah, and she told Pilate, have nothing to do with that man, in, in, in another way, basically saying, please do not harm him, because I've had many such dreams about this man. So that was one thing. What else? He essentially did that anyway, that whole idea of um, taking any way Okay, so it was the power of his wife, the woman. She had influenced him, and also he uh, he did. He washed his hands of the whole case and said, "Let his blood be upon upon the people." And they said, "Yep, let him be upon us and upon our children." Um, what else? What was going on at the time with Pontius Pilate? 
there was the Roman rule. The Romans were ruling a Jewish city. They had um, Jewish representatives or Jewish kings like Agrippa. Was it, a, was, it a, was it an easy atmosphere? No. What was going on at the time? What was going on? Yeah, absolutely. And the Bible actually tells us that as a result of the Lord's death, what happens? They became friends. Good. Does that answer the question or do you, do you not convinced? <laughs> Judging by the account, you would think that Pilate didn't, didn't actually care what happened to Christ. Pilate didn't actually care what happened to Christ. What Pilate cared about was his position, and he wanted to um, put at ease any sort of civil unrest that was about to take place. So that's the sort of gist that you get from reading the passage. But on top of that, the Romans, the Romans were ruthless, but the Romans also were civil, or were, or were trying to be civil. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't just a Roman. If a Roman wasn't happy, he doesn't he doesn't just put someone to death. In fact, the way they would govern if someone's deserving to death is or deserving of death is that they have to stand and speak or provide a defence against or sorry the two parties like the the man who's condemned and and the man who's condemning him would have to stand and provide a defence for each other against each other. And, um, and then someone would govern or someone would uh, judge what the outcome should be, okay? So as much as we say sort of the Romans were ruthless and so forth, they also tried to uh, establish a system that was somewhat sort of just. So Pilate wasn't in the business of just killing people for the sake of killing people, but we know that Pilate was very concerned of his position more than anything else. And we can tell by his question to Jesus. He asks the Lord, what is the truth? And then he storms out. He was, he was obviously in a conflict, and in a conflict. But we know that, you know, at the end of the day, he washed his hands of, of the Lord's blood, and he walked away. Yeah, I'm not. Could could well be. We can only go off by by what we're told in the scriptures, really. 
but yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. I wonder if you, did you want to add anything to that or? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good point. Does anybody have any comments they would like to make? That's it. Okay. Thank you guys so much. That concludes the end of the series. Uh, next week, do we have? Thank you. Thank you.